Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located in downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with Christopher Stewart, whose firm Lure is right in our backyard in Carmel, Indiana. I mean, literally, my backyard is in Carmel, Indiana. Chris and I chat about what it means to be a transdisciplinary design firm and all of the cool projects that they are involved with. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Christopher Stewart. All right, guys, today I'd like to welcome founder and principal of Lure, published author, artist, and designer based in Carmel, Indiana, Christopher Stewart. Chris, thanks for being on Obsessed with Design. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. So, Chris, you and I met a few years ago, and uh, although your studio is less than a mile from my house, it looks like you've been a pretty busy boy. In fact, just for us to chat, we had to schedule this podcast. I know, long overdue, right? We've been meaning to get a beer, so I guess uh, <laughs> more beer and more podcasts in the future. <laughs> Excellent. Well, already, we'll just go ahead and schedule episode number two. All right. Um, and of course, um, as you mentioned to me before, you guys have been running and gunning in the last couple of months, which is which is awesome. So, congrats on all of your recent successes, especially the uh, New York Design Week bit, which we'll get to in a moment, but. Maybe before we dig into any specific projects, I always like to talk with our guests about their origin story as a designer. So tell us a little bit about how you got attracted to design in the first place and how you started doing this professionally. Sure. I mean, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try to make it as concise as I can. Um, It really was kind of like a series of different events that all sort of cumulatively led up to where I am now, like with most people, I'm sure. Um, I kind of found my way in industrial design. I didn't even know what it was until I was, you know, uh, working at a job as an adult and um, working as a graphic design sort of specialist in a prototype shop at uh, a consumer electronics company. And we were basically, the shop was building the prototypes for the industrial design department, and I was creating graphics to apply to the uh, the models. And it, we were basically doing that for the ID department, and that's where I learned about it. And I said, oh, my God, I, I want to be an industrial designer when I grow up. That's that's amazing. So you were, um, you were employed there as you were learning about what industrial design entailed? Right, right. Like, I that was the very first time I I even learned what it was. And then through that job, I became very aware of it. And actually a job position came up while I was working as this prototype specialist in the graphics department. And uh, the job came up for an assistant to the industrial design department. And I got that job and slowly worked my way up from that to um, officially learning industrial design and getting an industrial design title and putting products on the shelf. So this was before, um, this was before or after you graduated from Heron? This was before I graduated from Heron. So while I was there at Thompson and I was working, it was Thompson Consumer Electronics. And while I was there, 
working, I was going and taking some evening classes because I recognized that I learned this on the job and that in order to way, work my way up, I, I should probably get the piece of paper um, because, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, most most people in industrial design have a degree. I think it would be very rare these days to get that type of opportunity. But so I started pursuing school and with some evening classes, um, but eventually I got laid off. The, the huge downturn in the economy happened and everyone lost their jobs. I ended up at a consultancy in Atlanta doing industrial design, which was fun as well. But seven months later, laid off again and uh, realized that, wow, this is probably a really good time to take a break from work and go back to school and finish this degree once and for all. So I decided instead of industrial design, because I had already had so much experience in it, I thought, well, you know what? I get most of my inspiration as an industrial designer from furniture, fashion, and automotive. I should probably just go to school for furniture. Um, so that's what I did. And learning the making side while I was at Heron School of Art and Design, it really opened my eyes to more possibilities. Again, like I said, cumulatively life experiences. Um, so I was able to combine the design side with the making side. And from that, that really really changed everything for me. So did you go straight from your experience at Heron to starting Lure or was there another role or two in between there? I officially started Lure when I got laid off from Thompson the first time, because even though I was laid off, they were still using me as sort of a freelance contractor. So okay. I was doing that under Lure and then Lure kind of like, I didn't close it down. I just kept, I kept the, <clears throat> kept it, the doors open, even though I wasn't really doing any work while I was at the consultancy. And when I went to Heron, I started freelancing again because I, I had to pay the bills still. Um, and I was doing that under Lure as well. And then when I graduated, I just made it official. And the freelance work was picking up. So I was able to bring on uh, my first worker or hand, however you want to look at it, <laughs> and um, then opened up the studio. So I think it's interesting that you um, describe Lure as a transdisciplinary design studio. Uh, and on the website, you talk about working in graphics, objects, spaces to conceptualize and develop innovative solutions that represent the client's brands, which I'm sure um, you're very intentional about that. Like in your verses, in your personal bio, you, you simply state that you are an artist and designer. So talk to us about... Um, what Lure is about and kind of how you see your role within the firm. So I call it a transdisciplinary design studio. And that, that term has kind of grown and changed from multidisciplinary to enter to trans. And I landed on trans because it makes the most sense of how we work. Multidisciplinary can mean that one firm can practice, say, landscape architecture, interior design and architecture but they might have three different principles or each person specializing in that one area. And sure. they work, then they, under one brand, they're able to do all of that work. I touch on all of those areas. So trans means to cross. So everyone that works at Lure has, is very, very diverse. So we don't just do one thing. We don't have one skill set or one discipline as you will. So, that's why I use the word trans. And I want to back up a quick second. Before I learned 
industrial design, I was doing a lot of graphic design. Again, self-taught, but nonetheless, that's where I started. And that primarily because I had a painting background prior to graphics. So it was a natural transition for me from the art to the design side, thinking uh, two-dimensionally. The When I worked at Thompson as an industrial designer and I would come up with a, a new product, I would create renderings for it. I'd create basically a story around it because there was a story. There was a demographic I was creating it for. And when I was doing that, I was imagining what the package should look like. Um, but I was not allowed to design the package. It would go off to a different group for that, the graphic design department. And I would have input. And every time they looked at me like they wanted to kill me. <laughs> and they had their own. Yeah. And they had their own story of what this thing should be. And that usually was determined by the sales group, not marketing, not graphic design, sales. Mm -hmm. And sales was driven by um, the buyers on the retail side. So some buyer that knows nothing about the product I created just determined what the packaging should look like. And that was a huge problem for me. And when I decided to have my own studio, I said, well, I can pick and choose what type of clients we have. And through that, I can also determine how much of this program we do. So, you know, it's good in that it's diverse and that we are able to bring in more hours, um, billable hours. But beyond that, it allowed me to have more control over this overall story. Yeah. We talk a lot here about, um, you know, a, a holistic approach. We were talking with a, a firm in the, in the built environment, um, a week ago. And, you know, it was cool to see how, how much they paralleled that. And I, I think what's so cool about what Lure does is that beyond what a traditional branding agency might do from a holistic solution or, a you know, an architecture firm who says they're interdisciplinary. The fact that you guys touch on interiors and brands and packaging and <laughs> environmental, uh, it's product design. The, 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 the suite of things that you guys do is, is really kind of mind blowing. Thank you. I would say the object is at the root of it. Um, I think that that's where things usually start for us. And from object, we go, we can go over to the graphic side or we can go over to the spatial side. So an example of um, a product that would be more mainstream, we would do the product, then the graphics, then we would create all the environmental retail point of purchase displays and that kind of thing and how it looks at retail. But on other jobs that are more independent, we might take on an interior design job. And of course, we'll tackle the floor plan first, but we're not limited by picking things out of a catalog. We are really able to customize the space because we have control over what the product should be. And we create most of the furniture and fixtures custom for those environments. So I look at it as like, like you said, a holistic approach. And, you know, like branding, if you think about branding on a graphic level, this is really an, an overall identity that we're, that we're creating for the client. And we're able to customize that identity for them through those objects that no one else is going to be able to have. Well, maybe to help our listeners to wrap their heads around your studio a little bit more, you know, we've talked to folks who are in massive firms and people who, you know, basically have a studio of one or two. And I'm just kind of curious how Lure is shaped today, what your current size is and, and kind of what, well, I'll get into part two. Let's talk about the kind of how you guys are shaped right now. We're still small. I mean, we've been small for a while now. I, I do find a lot of challenges growing the size of our firm being located in Indiana for the type of work that we do. 
primarily because we are looking for these really unique jobs and not a lot of people want to take those types of chances, nor do they have the budgets here to, um, in their minds, justify something that's not tangible, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the current size of our company is me, I'm the principal, and my right-hand man, James, uh, has been with us for four years now since I graduated. And initially we brought him on as a contractor and uh, I think immediately ended up hiring him and he's he's been an employee since. We have a handful of contractors that we use, um, some more regularly than others, depending on workflow and um, skill sets needed. So if we're heavy on if a program's heavy on the product design side, for example, and the timeline doesn't allow me to to stretch that out on my own through James's help, then I might need to bring on more more people. Or if we happen to get a huge bracelet order and Christmas is approaching and we're finding our inventory running low, we might bring on some uh, studio hands to help make bracelets and that kind of thing. So for your role specifically, a normal normal day, normal week for you, how much of your time is like you know, heads down designing, sketching, working through problems and how much of it is more administrative or talking to clients or planning? Like what's, what's a normal day or week look like for you? Well, let me, if we can, for a second, back up to the last question, I actually uh, wanted to add my wife, Rachel also works here and she's the, uh, the CFO and um, general office manager. So she oversees the day to day activities of everything. She basically keeps me on my toes. She's, she keeps my head out of my butt. Wives are good for that for sure. Yes. And I found that that's been a real good balance to the company because it allows me to be a lot more creative through the process and not have to worry about the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the, the administrative side. I mean, I'm still very Mm -hmm. much the business side. So coincidentally, my wife does a very similar thing for us here. And, uh, she does most of her work with us. You know, people ask me all the time, how do you guys work with your spouse? Like, how does that work? And the good news for us is she does most of her stuff, uh, remotely. So it's, (laughs) (laughs) we don't, we don't really even have the opportunity to, uh, like see each other too much. It's kind of the opposite problem really. So is your wife there on site or is she doing remote or how's that work for you guys? She does both. So, um, she's here with me today. So sometimes she comes in and sometimes she works from home. And it really, it depends on, you know, what, what needs to be done for her to decide whether or not she needs to come in or not. But when she is here, oddly, we don't really see each other much. We have a big open workspace and James and I sit across from each other. Um, but Rachel has her own office. So she, uh, you know, she's really pretty much out of, out of, uh, out of sight for me. <laughs> but sometimes I think, like you said, you know, it is challenging. The, you know, when you are working with your spouse, I actually think it's made our personal relationship stronger. You know, I think there's always been, there's always challenges with when you see someone on a regular basis, but because you can't turn it off, you know, you go home and one person wants to let everything go and the other person wants to discuss it. But I think we've been very, very communicative about it. And, um, that's been incredibly helpful. And I think as a result, it's helped our business and it's helped our relationship. Very nice. Well, maybe we'll circle back to that other question then. Tell us a little bit about kind of what your day-to-day role looks like. My day-to-day, um, honestly, it changes. Um, I think that part of being such a diverse studio 
um, what that means is that my role and everyone here, here's role is different and it, it can be different, you know, daily and hourly. And I think that's one thing that we're trying to get a lot better about is scheduling our time or scheduling our projects so that we're not chopping things up so much um, because it really, you know, I think it can add a lot of stress. We are not just a design studio, but we fabricate quite a bit. Um, We make our a lot, a lot of our own products in house. So one day we can be designing another day we can be sanding in the shop. (laughs) Yeah. And then we work with a lot of local fabricators too. Um, and not just local regional. And, um, we even had a piece made in Seattle for my solo show that was, uh, is in New York now. And so there's a lot of traveling involved. Sometimes we have to make a lot of runs to fabricators to review things that are happening then sometimes I put the sales hat on and I'm going out and having meetings and trying to drum up business. Um, I mean, it, it, it varies quite a bit. I try to keep, I try to keep, I try to delegate as much as I can. And James has really taken on a lot of responsibility over the years. Um, I think that James's primary role is execution. My primary role is creative. Um, and then I, in terms of the business side, I am more of the big picture um, direction for the company and what it looks like, what that feels like. Um, and my wife is more of the details and nuts and bolts and figures out what we need to do to make that happen. Sure. And I know you mentioned that, um, you've had a lot of travel going on and shows lately. Um, how often are you like out and about attending conferences or speaking or, you know, exhibiting what, what's that look like for you right now? You know, I seldom attend conferences or even speak at them. The, I mean, I have had a couple opportunities um, to do to do that locally. I've not traveled for any recently. Uh, I did do a little bit for the book, but now I would say it's more about attending uh, furniture fairs like the Architectural Digest Show and uh, New York Design Week. Um, so I would probably say. We don't travel a ton, two, three times a year for shows like that. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are maybe some of your favorite things to work on right now? Favorite things to work on. Um, since the show, I can't stop thinking about the art side of the design world. When I say that, I mean that area where art and design kind of overlap and it's more about one-offs or pieces that uh, I don't know how to describe it, but you know, um, the work from the show is a lot more sculptural and, um, it's a lot more conceptual. So honestly, that's where my head is right now. Like I want to really want to be able to continue doing as much of that as possible. Well, maybe that's a good segue then tell us a little bit about your recent show for New York design week, which was called constructs and glitches. And you got all kinds of fantastic press for that as well. So tell us about kind of how that came together so constructs and glitches is my first solo show under my name prior to this i was working under the studio name lure and um, showing any of our work under that name as a matter of fact like just a couple months before at the architectural digest show we showed that work under lure Um, but constructs and glitches is at the future perfect Um, they are the gallery that gave me that opportunity and how that came about was the year before I was showing at Sight Unseen Off-Site, 
Um, to give you a little bit of background, New York Design Week has become this really widely encompassing time period where there's ICFF, which is the Contemporary Furniture Fair, um, which is how it started and brings in a lot of visitors. So other places in New York realized, well, while design people are here, we should probably do more things. So a lot of offshoots were created. Sight Unseen Offsite is one of those offshoots. And they Sight Unseen is an online blog that basically curates the new and different, hence the name. So last May, last year during New York Design Week, we showed um, a collection with at Sight Unseen Offsite. Um, just right before that, they actually put us on their American Design Hot List and which was a really huge bump for us and that created a lot more visibility and then they had us out we showed and one of the objects that we showed was the u-bench and the future perfect picked that product up and was doing really well with it so i had conversations with the owner and he said you know <clears throat> we should follow up as a one-year anniversary um, and have a show and you know, show another body of work. So that's, that's pretty much how that came about. We decided at that time that one of the other things that got a lot of attention at Sight Unseen Offsite was the North-South bracelets. And we realized those were completely different products and that I uh, needed to tighten that up, that brand, and help that story out. And so I drew a line recently that divides the two brands, Lure and My Namesake, and um, all the stuff that I feel is more conceptual and art-based and a lot more personal I'm putting under my name. So for um, folks who maybe aren't familiar with the North-South bracelet or maybe haven't seen a, any of the constructs and glitches, can you describe a little bit for us what, the, what each of those projects were about? So the North-South bracelets started when we were creating product in-house and to go back even a little further, when I started Lure, we were mostly service, but we weren't getting hired for the type of work we wanted to do. Um, you know, so how do you get hired for that type of work? And the answer for me was, well, we need to show what that looks like. So I'm going to self-fund this and self-produce it. And I used my making experience and knowledge to just go ahead and start a, a wood shop. And we got a CNC as well. And with the equipment that we had in-house and materials that were more accessible, like Corian sheet goods and uh, which is, you know, your typical counter material, countertop material mm -hmm. and other sheet goods and wood and that type of thing. What can we make in-house? And the North-South bracelet was one of those items. And it's basically there are a few different shapes and 12 different colors of Corian and the bracelet there are halves of the bracelet and they have really strong magnets and you basically can mix and match to choose what you want that overall look to be. Yeah. They're really, it's a really cool piece and they're kind of like these, uh, you know, bigger chunkier style bracelets and some of them are more curved or more square, but that was just a, just a brilliant piece really. Thanks. And you know, it, People want to design. They want to have more control over that. So, and they want to customize. So, I basically gave them the variables to do that. Um, I mean, I still had a lot of control over the overall design, but the buyer or the end user can take it from there. And if they want to be conservative, they can put two half circles together. And if they want to be, you know, wacky, they can put a square and a 
and a polygon together, you know? Yeah. And regardless of the, the exterior shape, they still fit together the same way. So you can mix and match any two, any two you'd want. Right. 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 Yep. They all have the same interior circle, circle shape. And then the, um, the U-Bench was really the first construct. Um, I developed the name construct later to help describe the sort of systematic approach I was taking to create these shapes, which is different than my traditional industrial design approach, where I will, based on certain variables, sketch and from the sketch, you know, model it. Um, For a lot of the constructs, I have an idea in my mind of what I want it to be, but I mostly jump right into CAD and start modeling um, basic blocks using very simple tools in CAD and then splitting the simple geometry and modifying it by adding a radius or a chamfer, et cetera, and then reattaching it so that it has a um, creates somewhat of an emotional feeling when you look at it where, uh, maybe some discomfort from a cantilever or, you know, where the U-bench, for example, when you look at it, you aren't sure what side you should sit on. And if you sit on one side, would it tip over? Um, because it has some of those cantilevered moments. And that was the dialogue for constructs. So I basically created a series of objects around those systematic guidelines. And then while I was creating those constructs, there were these errors happening in the 3D program I use um, because of the tolerances I was asking the computer to do or the software to do. Mm-hmm. And through those errors, it created a lot of untrimmed surfaces um, and some weird surface anomalies. And they've happened ever since I've used CAD for as long as I can remember. And you just find workarounds for them. But in this particular moment, I saw it as the computer creating its own system of variables. And um, through through that set of variables, a different aesthetic was happening. So I kind of sort of started sliding them off to the side thinking, wow, these these are actually really interesting. I have no idea what they are, but they're really interesting. And it's almost like the computer is trying to one up me. And, um, so <laughs> yeah, so I realized that I needed to do both at the same time. So I needed to show them together. So it's like this mix of, of pieces that came out exactly as planned. And then these others that are, uh, uh these mutants or <laughs> kind of computer generated accidents that are still really compelling to look at. Absolutely. Yep. So maybe uh, exploring what happens with glitches in the software is going to be the answer here. But, you know, everybody that we have on the show, um, designers in general, I think are all kind of obsessed with uh, a myriad of things. So I'm curious when I, you know, talk about obsessions, like what's what's the thing that you feel like you're most obsessed with right now? Whew. What am I most most obsessed with? I think experimentation and I have it in my mind right now that I want to go on as many residencies as I can, which is really (laughs) kind of weird, but like coming off of that show and the way constructs and glitches came about, it was a very process oriented, um, you know, um, thing like the, 
if it wasn't for me creating this system and set variables and trying to limit myself within those, you know, it wouldn't have come out the way it did. And, you know, being broad and being completely open and just thinking, what do I want to do next? And just having like, you, you probably are going to have a lot more trouble, you know, identifying what that is. And, and so I want to travel as much as I can. Honestly, I, I don't know if it's possible, but I would love to travel and either stay at a manufacturer um, and learn as much as I can about what it is they do in-house and then develop a product based on those limitations and see how far I can push what it is they do. And can I come up with something new and interesting out of that process or material? Yeah, I love that. So for so many of our guests, you know, I've, I've heard from so many of our, um, folks that, you know, side projects are kind of how they, how they keep the passion alive or how they keep excited about design or how they kind of work through a tough patch with a client or something. But <laughs> as I look at this stuff that you guys do, like it, it's hard for me to say, well, that's their side gig and this is their main thing because you guys have so many things going on. So between, I mean, you guys have done obviously your own products that you've designed and sold. You've done package design for Motorola or interior pieces for Roche, or jewelry, landscape architecture, branding and art installations. I'm just kind of curious what your, what your take is on the idea of a side project or if, if that's a concept that you guys think about, or if it's really this transdisciplinary thing, just as sort of inclusive of that idea. I think it's both. Um, a lot of, a lot of that, those different, um, categories or different disciplines kind of came out of it being a side project. Uh, you know, we had, we had our client projects that were more strict and more mainstream. Um, and, but, but paid, paid well enough to keep the lights on, you know what I mean? So, um, you, I don't know if you want to call them bread and butter projects. Um, but you know, to fulfill the, the void where we felt like, wow, you know, we had to make that compromise or I wish they would have went this direction. That was really when we started saying, you know, how do we get people to hire us for exactly what we're good at? You know, like we're not getting hired to, um, develop a product properly or the way we think it should look. So that was when we started self-producing. And I think that started as a side project, but, but as a business goal too. So we, we really did treat it as, as a business and that we tracked our hours. We tried to develop a product within limitations, you know, where we knew we could hopefully sell that product. So other projects though, like some of the public projects where we worked with keep Indianapolis beautiful, for example, um, had incredibly low budgets and we really, really just loved that we had a lot more creative control with those projects. We also recognized that we were getting practice in an area that we didn't have a lot of experience in. Mm -hmm. Um, so we kind of saw those as side projects and I think we continue to do that. We look for things that are really fun that fill a void. And if we're kind of down about a client project, um, then we try to offset that with something fun. And if it, if it doesn't 
pay as great, we have to really consider whether or not we take that project. And we have to make sure we have learned that small budgets um, mean that you can't do the type of work that you want to do. So there's also limitations there. Whether you have the creativity or not, the budget, if it's too low, is also limiting, which means you're going to put out bad work. So um, we tried to balance that as well. So maybe in addition to the budget piece, because obviously if there's not budget to do it, it's not something you can typically say yes to, but what else do you think, um, defines a great client for you guys or, you know, where, where do you feel like those best clients or lead sources come from? I think the best leads have come from the self-initiated work that we do, which is exactly what we wanted to happen. Um, the people who see the work for my solo show from that body of work can imagine what I would do for them if they hired me mm-hmm. to do something like that. And that takes out a lot of the problems that we have in service work as designers, where we're tr- playing this guessing game. And I think that those are the ultimate clients for me, the ones that trust what I am going to give them and, re- and they respect that. You know, there's, there are, there are things that I look for in certain clients as well. You know, like if, if one knows or if one has very little respect for the design process and they're looking for, you know, something incredibly cheap and want you to get there fast, then that is, that is something that, you know, I worry about. I try not to work for people like that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Cause I'm never going to make them happy. And they, in the end, what they want is, is something, something grand anyway. They ask you to shoot from the hip, but they really want something that's, you know, game changing. (laughs) And, um, all of that work takes time. It's a process. It's not, you know, it's not something that we just, you know, spit up and throw up on a page, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, but at the same time, a client can be too interested in design, in my opinion. And, um, the ones that, come to me where they feel like I can tell they already think they know what they want and want to basically hire me as a hand or a guide. Um, I try not to take on those projects. (laughs) What could go wrong with that kind of project? (laughs) (laughs) You've been there. (laughs) You know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Maybe once or twice. Yes. I think all of us have any designer has experienced that. I'm sure. But you go into it, you think, oh, man, this is a great relationship. They, they love design. They're all excited. They're gung-ho. But what, what you learn is that they, they like a lot of things about design, but they themselves, if they can think of it, then they really don't need you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's something, there's something wrong with that variable where they can't put it together and it could be because they're trying to mix 10 styles at once mm-hmm. um, and they don't understand that they, that, you know, how they fit together. But yeah, you know, that's usually what happens. We were talking with uh, Joseph Zala from Vigor Branding a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the uh, the poisonous word just when a, when a client says, well, I just need you to. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like the, the worst possible red flag for me. Yes. Tell us about one of your proudest moments as a designer. You know, I've had a lot of them. And, you know, when I think that it's one of those deals where it's like, you know, if you have bad days, you have really bad days. 
but if things are going well, they can go really well. And, um, I set goals for myself as a designer. So, and I try not to make them too lofty, but when I reach that goal, I put another goal out there that's further away, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the main goals that I had was, uh, to, to get more national recognition because it is, it is hard to survive as a creative firm just in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't rely on just local clients. Uh, so first just getting recognized by sight unseen on the hot list was amazing. And then the success that we had showing with them was huge. I think personally, before going to sight unseen offsite years ago, uh, when I had an interest in furniture design, I learned about the future perfect, which is the place that had the solo show. And I said to myself, before I die, I would love to have one piece at the future perfect as a designer. Like that's it. That's, that's my goal as a furniture designer. <laughs> and, um, it was one of my goals as a furniture designer. So when, when I met them at sight unseen and they were interested in the bench, um, I actually, they didn't introduce themselves. So I didn't know who they were. And we were kind of negotiating, um, them picking up that piece. And, mm-hmm. and I said, you know what? At this point I was thinking, you know what? I don't even know who you are. Like, and here we are talking about costs and <laughs> I might like, I might not want to be in your gallery. And, um, I said, so who are you anyway? Like, what's the name of your store? And they said the future perfect. And I said, Oh, <laughs> you know, Oh, okay. And I tried to play it really cool. I tried to play it really cool, but that was a, that was a really special moment for me. Yeah. I think maybe I've heard of you guys. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. we're out East. Is that right? Right. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, thinking back at some of those proudest moments, you know, what are, what are those things that you've still got out there that you want to do? What's, what would be like a great dream project for you? Um, you know, I have, I have a few, I have a few things. I mean, since we, we do a little bit on the more commercial product side, uh, we also, you know, I dabble in art and the interior design thing. And I have, I would say as a furniture designer, another goal for me would be able to work with a company like Herman Miller Mm -hmm. and produce a piece, you know, live the whole Ray and Charles Eames dream, you know, (laughs) that's, that would be amazing. That's awesome. Um, And I like Herman Miller, especially because they're, you know, they have been around forever and they're not too far from us in Indiana, right? Like they're just, just North of us in Michigan. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's also other manufacturers that I really admire. I think on the interior design side, I would really, really, really love to do something on a big scale for, I love, I love retail design. I think Mm -hmm. that's one of my favorites, um, because you can really be more conceptual with it, especially with the objects and the furnishings. So that interests me. Other things that interest me on the more art side is actually public art. So I would love to do something at a, at a big scale, um, like Richard Sarah scale. So the collection that I showed in New York 
is what I call sculpture at furniture scale. Mm-hmm. And it's the scale of the objects that give them their function. If you scale those down to like pedestal size, they're just art pieces with with no function. And if you scale them up, they could be public art or scale them bigger and they could be architecture. So I really want to explore that. That's like my dream to be able to work at a much larger scale. That's very interesting. I sort of unrelated, but um, my kids are really into the movie Zootopia that came out a few months ago. And that is uh, as, as animated features go, that really deals with scale in a way that um, I don't feel like many movies do where you've got these characters that are, you know, mouse size through rabbit size, through rhinos and elephants. And, um, I'm not sure why that made me think of your (laughs) example, but uh, I got to go check it out. Yeah. It's, it's funny how they, how they deal with some of these things. Like each, each part of their world is built for different sized, uh, animals. And it's, it's just interesting, interesting scale idea. Huh? I'm definitely intrigued. I would like to put that on my wish list. So with that bizarre segue, um, <laughs> I think as, as designers, at least I know I am, I feel like some days you're just like blessed or ruined in how you see the world around you. And I'm curious in particular, what are some of the things that just drive you absolutely bonkers? What drives you crazy? Um, what drives me crazy? You know, not a lot in the design world, but I think just in everyday life, like my, I can't turn my problem solving off or my attention to detail. Mm. And I think that, um, that part annoys me. Like if I'm watching a movie, especially, I think it's usually TV commercials burn me up first off, um, <laughs> which I guess is design cause it's advertising. But, um, I think it's the, uh, what do you call that person's job? that works the movie set that's supposed to make sure everything's Uh, like the continuity guy. Yes. That I find like, I, I notice when things are missing, like, Oh my God, that pen was in the other hand a second ago. (laughs) Her arm was up and now it's down and now it's up and now it's down. Yeah. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. (laughs) That could be OCD too. That may be less of design, (laughs) maybe less about being a designer and just more about being, well, anybody who's listening to this, who's never paid attention to that before, like now all of you are screwed too. So now you're all going to join us and yes. see these crazy continuity problems. Yeah. And I do have, I do have some control issues too, like especially driving and, um, left turn lanes really drive me crazy. Uh, you know, like where there's a divided highway and there's no turn signal mm-hmm. for some reason in Indiana, when people use those left turn lanes, they they go all the way forward. So, you know, at a street light, you pull forward just enough and you're across from someone who is also turning left and you're facing each other. Right. In Indiana, if there's no street light there, they think they need to move all the way forward. So you get this cluster of like <laughs> cars trying to turn into each other. So and, neither one of them can turn at this point because they're right. both so far forward. Right, right. So when I go into one of those and I try to use it correctly, someone pulls up on my right trying to turn around in front of me thinking I'm making a U-turn. I think that's why Michigan just decided, you know what, we're not going to let anybody ever turn left. We're just going to make you do a U-turn and then turn right. Yeah, the good old Michigan left. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that thing drives me crazy too. I know. Got a few of those popping up here. We do, I hate them. Or, you know, like our, our lovely city of Carmel has the most roundabouts of any city in the nation. So, you know. You don't have to worry about making a left-hand turn if you can just go around in a circle all day. Yeah, yeah. But you have to watch out for that. those people who haven't learned how to use them yet. 
<laughs> I think I encountered a lady yesterday who got halfway around one of the circles and was treating it like a merge lane. <laughs> she oh. just stopped looking over her shoulder inside the roundabout waiting to get over. <laughs> That's great. It's bizarre. Yeah. They're kind of dangerous. Well, um, speaking of dangerous, how, what do you do to, um, like shake off a bad project? Like, what do you do to kind of get a fresh perspective or, you know, do you walk away? Do you think about it? Do you hammer away on your CNC machine? (laughs) I think I do a lot of stress eating lately, but, um, (laughs) my wife and I talk about it and I think we end up deciding we have to just make the best of the situation and learn from it and recognize that next time we need to add something in our contract that protects us a little better. Um, (laughs) or, um, and, and then we just try to move on. Um, but we do, I think most of the time it just comes down to realizing that how important it is to articulate everything from mm-hmm. the beginning, to not, to make no assumptions and to have it all in writing. We break down our contracts now by, uh, phases and every phase ends with a review and sign off. And, um, that's something that we're doing to improve that going forward. But, you know, when it happens, because it does, you know, things don't always go as planned and there are compromises when you're working with other people. Yeah, I just, I think I just try to make the best of it, honestly. And I think that I do, um, my wife says I have this thing where I, oh, what is it? What is she? What does she call it? Like I'm constantly deferring. And so if I have something that is festering at me like that, then I'll pick up another project. So I'll just create something else for myself to work on. (laughs) It's actually, I'll, sometimes I'll just get my sketchbook out and start thinking about things that I want to be doing. If no one had any input. I was going to ask you where you go for inspiration. Is that the sketchbook or are there other places that you think that you find inspiration? Um, I look at a lot of, uh, I look at a lot of other designers like constantly, um, just making sure that I'm aware of what's going on, um, seeing what other people are doing. And, um, I look back at a lot of, um, a lot of the greats like Brancusi, Noguchi, Scott Burton, Richard Serra. I've had a particular interest in going to see large public art more regularly. I, while we were in New York, I visited Dia Beacon my wife and I did. And we, uh, which is amazing by the way, any, any art buff should, could go, should go see this, but, um, massive room full of Richard Serra's and mm, very cool. Yeah. And solo wit and Dan Flavin. So I look to a lot of them for, um, inspiration or aspiration, if you will. Very cool. What do you feel like, uh, is your best piece of advice either, either your favorite piece of advice that you've received or maybe your favorite piece of advice to pass along to younger designers? I think my, the best advice that I could pass on to a younger designer is things that something that I learned on my own, which, um, is really just, I mean, don't be afraid to go after something. Um, that I, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a beautiful quote, but it's, it's really just about following through and putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've ran into so many talented people before, amazingly talented people, but, um, they either lacked confidence to follow through or they were too lazy to follow through. <laughs> um, so 
you know, you just like just being able to produce something and put it out there. You're already ahead of most people. That's a great point. You know, just the fact that you got off the couch and and thought of something and then actually acted upon that and produced it puts you uh, far above everybody else. Absolutely. I think some other advice I would have is goes along with that is that um, you can't really listen to <clears throat> your peers you or not necessarily your peers, but you can't listen to people who are telling you, no, you can't do something. I mean, I get I get it a lot, um, even from people that I would not expect to hear it from. Um, but if we're because people know me as either a maker or a furniture designer or something like that, or a product designer. When they learn that I'm doing a spatial project, they question that. Um, they question our ability to do that. Uh, when I wrote my first book, I heard from people, but you're not an author. <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't born an author. So clearly you'll never be an author. <laughs> right. But, but the flip side to that is that we really respect people like, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. And we really respect people who do do multiple things. And if you're a celebrity, you're allowed to become a furniture designer or, you know, <laughs> right. create your own label. If and, Kevin Bacon wants to release a, a wine, he can do that. Right. Now, if you're a celebrity, you can't become a musician. But if you're a musician, you can become or if you're an actor, you can't become a musician. But if you're a musician, you can become an actor. So... <laughs> To be a famous furniture designer or fashion designer, you should probably start out as a musician to become an actor first. Yeah, just like designers can be podcasters, but podcasters can't be designers. <laughs> right. I mean, these maybe. are, yes, these are a lot of rules that we have to follow in life, but <laughs> I personally say ignore all of them. Well, we haven't really touched on the book at all or the books at all. So tell us about how, um, that got started and, and do you have more books in you? Is there more that you want to write or have to say, or do you think that you're, you're uh, done with that for now? Um, you know, I, I told James after writing DIY one, uh, furniture one that don't let me write part two. And after part two, I told him, don't let me write part three. So <laughs> I've not written it yet. You ne never say never, I guess. Um, okay. First of all, James, you failed at that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see how you do it this next task. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and the only reason I said that was it was a really fun process, but they are a lot of work. I mean, it, it's a lot of work uh, when you're dealing with that many people and you're trying to get materials and format it all under timelines and, um, anyway, so those are the challenges with it, but there, with that, you know, with a lot of work, it's incredibly rewarding. Um, part one kind of came about while I was, when I decided to go back to school for furniture design at the same time, I was thinking to myself, how do I produce a piece of furniture when I've never done this before? Um, so I started thinking about ways I can just like prototype a one-off through, you know, things that I had readily available, mostly from the hardware store and <clears throat> thinking about how I might build a chair out of plywood or something. Um, I was doing some research on the internet and realized that there were a lot of other people doing the same thing, many of which were in Europe and that there was this kind of a movement or sort of an education like through Royal College of Art or Eindhoven, where they were doing this as part of their program. And 
uh, I found that, you know, with that, like there was this really great story, like, oh my gosh, this is really, this is really a good DIY thing. This is like DIY at the next level because prior to that, you know, everything that I'd seen on DIY was about finding a famous designer's piece that was really production like Ray and Charles Eames or something. And Mm -hmm. then figuring out how to make it out of plywood at your home just because you're, you know, too cheap to go buy one. (laughs) And this, this time I thought, wow, this is great. Designers are using these materials from the beginning. They have an understanding that these materials are going to impact the design. And it might not be as cheap as Ikea, but relative to buying one of these piece, the, one of these pieces from these, uh, you know, pretty well-known designers or artists, it's considerably less. So I thought about the idea of putting it together in um, a gallery show. And then I realized that it was really a book format thing. It was a training manual. So I pitched it to a couple publishers and one of them picked it up. Very cool. How does, uh, volume two differ from DIY one? And, and do you think there's a, there's a number three waiting in the, uh, off, off stage? DIY two differs from one. It's a little more minimalist. I think it's a little more conceptual, um, a little less mainstream. So part one was already not mainstream. Uh, and as a result, like there were some people giving it kind of bad reviews, um, because they thought everything in there was hideous or they thought the stuff wasn't cheap enough or whatever, or too hard to build. But, um, again, like, I think that that was the wrong person looking at it. Like that was a typical DIY crafter. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was really more intended for designers as, as a training manual. Like, you know, if you, if you have any interest in that, um, part two, like I said, is a little more conceptual. And then part three, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Let's see. I don't want to <laughs> say I won't do it, but at the moment I don't have plans to, um, I've had, uh, I've had some, People ask when part three is coming out. Uh, I don't think that I don't think I'm going to do it. There were some books that came out shortly after mine that I think it's maybe getting too saturated. Mm-hmm. And I like putting things out that are a little different. So I do still love curating. I do still like authoring, and I like books. Um, so I think that I have some book ideas that I'd like to produce one day, but all this other stuff is kind of in front of it. Well, maybe it's producing books or maybe it's something else, but where do you think you'll be 10 years from now? Where I hope to be is like on the beach sketching and then handing my sketch to some local craftsman to like bring it to life (laughs) and then send that piece to a gallery. (laughs) That would be like, that would be where I hope to be in 10 years. But yeah, that'd be the goal. All right. Well, let's, let's keep that thought in mind, in the front of our minds. Chris, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me today. And uh, before I let you go, tell our fans and listeners about where they could track you down online and and where to connect with you, buy your stuff. Sure. So the new body of work, constructs and glitches and that type of stuff is under ChristopherStewart.com. And you can also go to thefutureperfect.com. And Everything we do under the studio is at luredesign.com, which is L-U-U-R. And the online store is shop.luredesign.com. 
Very nice. Well, okay. Everybody be sure to check that stuff out. We will make links to all of those things in the show notes, as well as some of the things that uh, Chris mentioned on the show today. And uh, Chris, I appreciate you chatting with us and thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, boys and girls, that is episode number 27 in the books. As usual, for all of today's show notes, check out obsessedshow.com and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Be sure to hit up our Instagram account at Miles Herndon. We have more fantastic designers to interview in upcoming episodes. But if you have an idea of who you think we should interview next, tweet at Obsessed Show and make a recommendation. Heck, if you're a designer and you're listening to this show and you think you've got a story to tell, hit us up. I'm at Josh Miles on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.